Landon. And Monique. And we have a guest today that I was um, happy to meet last week uh, doing a education book boot camp um, for nurse practitioners around blood transfusion. There were so many interesting things that uh, we were so excited to have our guest. And I'm going to let him actually introduce himself. Hey, everybody. Um, my name's Andrew C. Um, I'm your neighborhood-friendly blood bank director over <laughs> at Vancouver General Hospital. Um, I used to also work as a hematologist out in Ontario before I moved out here. That's wonderful. And we actually thought we'd start to talk about, Andrew, if you don't mind, because I find this quite fascinating. Um, both Landon and I do go teaching quite a bit. And the whole concept of massive transfusion protocols. And I think a lot of the nurses who are perhaps not in a large center who have limited blood supply don't really understand all the different components and why we choose all those components. I'm wondering if you could speak to that. Yeah. So first, why don't we start with what a massive transfusion is? So, I mean, historically, it's been defined as a replacement of a whole blood volume in a patient within 24 hours. So that's typically about 10 units of red blood cells. And it's done in response to uh, when a patient is having a massive amount of uncontrolled hemorrhage. Um, the problem with this definition, though, is it's kind of a, it's a bit of a retrospective definition, mm -hmm. right? It's not right. really useful to people as they're bleeding on the table, right? You're, and you're already 10 units in. Yeah. yeah. And you go, oh, right, we're doing this wrong. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Probably time to make a decision a little bit earlier. So uh, I think a lot of studies are now referring to something uh, like uh, giving three or more units within one hour. That's uh, a definition called a critical administration threshold. But largely, it's a response to provide red blood cell transfusions and other transfusions uh, in response to a bleeding patient. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so when you talk about, so we talk about massive transfusion protocols that are written. Yeah. So you were talking about red blood cells. Yeah. But there's lots of different things within that, isn't there? Like different types of blood that's given or yeah. blood products that are given. Could you speak to that a little bit? Most definitely. So um, I always like to start off by saying that, you know, we used to resuscitate patients that were bleeding just by giving them red cells by themselves yeah. or crystalloid or even colloids once upon a time. The saline of life. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and as we like to say, there's nothing normal about normal saline. <laughs> Amen. So the idea is that, you know, you need, uh, you know, I won't go into the nitty gritty, but you need about 30% of your coagulation factors to produce uh, a blood clot or hemostasis, right? So what happens, and typically you, most patients have about anywhere from 50 to 100%. Right? And if you start transfusing patients only with red cells and crystalloid, uh, what happens is you consume some of these factors as you're bleeding. Mm -hmm. You give them red cells and uh, crystalloid, it dilutes it further, okay. and therefore they can't form a clot, and they right. just keep on bleeding. So right. you just create this vicious cycle right. where you don't replace all the other stuff. The whole point of trying to have a balanced transfusion or even a goal-directed transfusion is you're trying to make sure that they have the right clotting factors, platelets, and other things to go along with it. Right. So that's why things have moved along to what we call ratio-based transfusion, just so we're making sure that we provide a little bit of everything to ensure that patients can form a blood clot while still being able to provide um, oxygen to sort of vital organs. The interesting piece is that also, I also will say that a massive transfusion protocol, while a lot of people focus on the blood products, I actually think it's a much broader thing. The most important thing about a massive transfusion protocol is actually just a protocol itself and having an orderly fashion of what happens when a bleeding patient uh, is uh, stepping into the emerge room, right? right? So, and actually, I would argue, even if you look at the evidence, 
all the evidence is not about the ratio products. It's all around actually having a protocol. Yeah. Actually yeah. having a plan. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> having like, a plan. Like the reasons planes stay yeah. in the air is because there's a checklist. <laughs> exactly. But it is interesting because I think that a lot of people, and I love what you just said, Andrew, because I think we, we look at, okay, let's institute the massive transfusion protocol. But at the end point, we actually have to stop the bleeding somewhere. We're right. just giving them blood and not thinking about, well, how do we stop the bleeding? Where are we going? We're not going to leave this person here if they need surgery, if they need something else. And so I think it's going to be a dual thing, right? You need to kind of fill the bucket, but uh, plug up the hole in the bucket. Otherwise, there's no point. Just keep on filling the bucket. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, the whole point is not, uh, you're really trying to almost uh, buy time to a certain degree yeah. until you can actually institute some sort of definitive intervention yeah. and try to correct the coagulopathy as much as you can somewhere in the middle. Right? Yeah. And I, I think one of the interesting pieces about a massive transfusion protocol is I would almost treat it like people treat it like a code. You know, you have a huge team of people, you know, being physicians, okay. RTs, anesthesia, nurses are obviously in that group. Yeah. And, you know, what I always say is that it doesn't matter who in that group has the information as yeah. long as somebody in the group has information. Yeah. So whenever I do huddles around uh, nurses to talk about massive transfusion protocols, I say when you remind physicians to, let's just say, warm the patient, yeah. give calcium, make sure that you're giving, uh, you know, doing the lab testing properly. These are actually things that save lives. And actually, I would argue there's a, a decent amount of evidence around this. And even to back that even further, one of the big things is that, like anything like codes, you have to practice it. So, and this is actually evidence-based. Uh, there's actually a really interesting study uh, that took a collection of 33 studies, put them all together, and they found that actually stimulation uh, improves uh, outcomes. Oh. Hmm. Huh, that's interesting, hmm. isn't it? That seems to come up almost every time we do a podcast. <laughs> and we didn't even pay him to say that. I yeah. know. So... Do you have a question, Landon? I'm sorry, I was going to interrupt you. I do, you. and I, it, it might be later. One thing people ask about is around calcium, and if you can explain in like easy terms, why would we give someone calcium yeah. when in, in this environment? And what, what uh, for the nursing side, what should I see to know that the calcium I just gave actually did what it was supposed to? Yeah, that's a great question. And first of all, I want to point out that calcium just like warming the patient, are two things that are often forgotten. Uh, mm -hmm. When you look at audits, uh, typically, just in the chaos of the situation, you know, again, someone just needs to be the person in the group to provide that information. Calcium is goes down when you give red blood cells, because if you imagine a bag of blood, that's a clot, right? Mm -hmm. And the reason why is because they've removed all the calcium from it through uh, adding something called citrate, which binds the calcium. And uh, so you can imagine this citrate, as you give more and more red cells, you're also giving a ton of citrate. So it, it starts to bind all your patient's calcium. Mm -hmm. And the reason why calcium is so important is you need calcium to form a blood clot. Yeah. It actually used to be known as almost one of those clotting factors. Right. And uh, it's kind of the same thing around hypothermia as well. So if you can imagine your clotting enzymes are designed to work at core temperature, because that's yeah. what we exist as in human beings. So if you're at a temperature way below that, which happens if you're ill from a trauma, you're infusing cold units and fluids and things like that, um, your clotting enzymes are not gonna work properly. So again, I find when people don't correct hypothermia and hypocalcemia, it's this, it's this vicious cycle thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and it's a it's an important thing is the hypothermia, and I think we don't give it enough respect. Yeah. And, and I'm I'm a paramedic as well, and and it's amazing, you know, someone can be say hit by a car and they're laying on the street, 
and they lay there for you know 20 to 30 minutes while everyone comes and that kind of thing and people think well you know today in vancouver it's 24 degrees and and warm and sunny and everything and it's amazing when you sometimes compare it to people go yes but this is a 37 degree celsius organism yeah who is now in 24 degrees buck naked because their clothes have been cut off even on a hot day, mm-hmm. still an exposed patient can get hypothermic, especially when they're starting to peripherally shut down and and, and not mm-hmm. you know, absorb temperature from the environment as well. And yeah. so I think it's an important thing. We think hypothermia, though, like someone in avalanche or out in the cold, but even on a warm summer day, lay naked on a street after a trauma or be, take two hours to extricate from a vehicle, it can be profoundly hypothermic even on a hot day. Yeah, totally. absolutely. I always say C or cold equals coagulopathy. And sure. now we can say calcium, low, equals oh, coagulopathy as well. So lots like of C's. That. I yeah. Like mnemonics. They all have the same letter. <laughs> but it actually, it helps me because I think of coagulopathy. Now I can think of cold and calcium. And so those two things, if I can remember those two things, keep the patient warm and then check the calcium after every four units or so. Um, so that's a good question. Do we check calcium or do we just assume that it's going to be low and just give calcium? Again, great question. Uh, so first of all, I just want to uh, uh, kind of add more to the point that you put on previously that not only, you know, even if you have a warm day outside, is a patient cold, but you got to think about everything that you're giving yeah. is at room temperature, right? right? Yeah. So degrees. again, it's quite a bit lower than core temperature. So like whatever you do, even if you use a blood warmer, it's not going to be as warm as core temperature. So again, just why people need to get on top of it. And I, I, I know sometimes I've been in massive transfusions where mm. people say, I don't have to check time to check the uh, check the temperature, yeah. and I would argue you're pay- doing your patient a huge disservice by not doing so. Right. It's simple, easy, and there's lots of things you can do for it, right? Yeah. Uh, in regards to your um, question around uh, giving calcium, my general recommendation around doing labs in general mm-hmm. is uh, probably the best guidance comes from a guideline, I think uh, one of the European guidelines uh, that came out in 2016. Uh, they largely recommend to do labs about every half blood volume or every 45 minutes to an hour. Wow. I find tracking a half blood volume <laughs> in a chaotic situation is not easy. Right. Uh, so it's probably best to do it by time. So, but I would argue that most centers, again, when you audit them, it's all over the literature that we tend to under test in general. So I would propose to people that if you're thinking about testing, you should probably uh, be just, testing. Yeah, okay. For the people that um, uh, kind of going along the lines of giving uh, impaired treatment, I would probably say there's no uh, direct guideline to tell you how much mm-hmm. calcium you should give, but you're almost never, I wouldn't worry too much about giving too much calcium. So my right. general rule is about one gram of calcium gluconate or whatever you use at your center uh, for about every four units of red blood cells. Okay. And if you think about it, so that's definitely more yeah. than I've seen in yeah. pretty well my 20 years of resuscitation. Yeah, yeah so. me too. So it yeah. is something we need to think about. Yeah. It's funny, uh, and also, if you think about it, calcium also makes your heart contract stronger. Yeah, too, I was right? going to say, right? your blood vessels, yeah. too. So you, if you have a hypotensive patient who's yeah. also hypocalcemic, it kind of goes to order that you should probably be giving it, right, clinically. It's it's funny. And I know at our hospital, we're trying this pilot program right now that actually with the tubes of blood that we, uh, or the bags of blood that we send down for our master transfusion protocol, we actually put in a little reminder about giving calcium. Oh, really? Oh, wow. 
That's a great idea. That is a great idea. I love checklists. <laughs> Next, you'll just yeah. tape the clouds so we'll connect to the bag. To the bag. <laughs> that might be a better... We yeah. discussed that. With the syringe of already in it. Drawn But I think, Andrew, when uh, I was listening to Andrew uh, a couple of weeks ago, one of the things you said resonated with me a lot is about structure influencing behavior. So if yeah. you change your structure, you will influence the behavior. So by putting reminders or, as you said, sticking a, a, you know, a, a vial of calcium on the fourth unit that you send down, people will be like, oh, gosh, I guess that's what why I need to do. No more they'll wonder at the end, why do we have 12 units of calcium, <laughs> miles of calcium sitting here? Yeah. <laughs> we taught you nothing. <laughs> exactly. But I do think that that's important. So having a protocol, going back to that whole thing about having a plan, yeah. I think when, when people are anxious and you don't see this very often, having a plan to say, okay, I know where to start. Here we go. What What about... Sorry, and sorry. I just totally sidetracked you around the calcium question. Yeah. No. Hopefully we didn't miss any important things when I yeah. the only, suddenly threw the calcium thing out. <laughs> yeah. The only thing I just wanted to point out around kind of doing stimulations yeah. and, and things like that and uh, is that... So it depends on what uh, how you get blood down to the trauma bay or emergency yeah. room in the uh, in your hospital but i would say you know we always think about the bedside caregivers the biggest person i can guarantee that's missed is your porter yeah um, absolutely so mm -hmm. if your porter or your portering services aren't up to snuff that is your bottleneck in fact i would yeah. argue um, having the blood get down to the uh, emergency room, it's probably the bottleneck in just about every center. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Because I think you can hold some in your uh, emergency department, but then you have to make sure that the climate is good, that you can keep the blood there. And yeah. then, you know, some of our sites that listen to us may only have one or two units and then right. they have to either call someone in or it has to be shipped in. Right. right. So uh, I agree. I think those are the places where you need to say, is this going to make a huge difference? And the, the thing I would caution too about taking stuff out of the ER fridge so is yeah. that you know one of the things is that if let's just say you have four units of red cells in your fridge so you take those four units and you start transfusing your patient before you call a massive transfusion mm -hmm. protocol now suddenly you're way behind on plasma already yeah right and so I usually tell people even let's just say you have a patient en route who yeah. you know is going to need a massive transfusion we make sure actually there's blood product actually sitting in the emerge bay yeah. uh, when the patient shows up yeah right yeah so you should kind of pre-call if we thinking that yeah. that's happening you should just pre-call it yeah now if, if we were to talk can we talk a little bit about txa because now we've talked about yeah. you know we're we're from bigger centers you're you're certainly from a bigger center yeah. here and we're talking about having the availability of people being able to run down with product, having calcium, all of those kind of things. Um, if there was, you know, a lot of our rural sites either have no blood or have very limited supply, and they may have blood or RBCs, but they don't have plasma. I want to make sure I'm saying all the terms correctly. Um, and so I know that when we go around to some of the sites teaching, we often say that TXA is underutilized in a lot of those centers who definitely, if you have limited blood supply, that should be your first, almost the first thought you think of, bleeding TXA sort of thing. Amen. What would you say about that? Uh, I think first you just of all, said it. I know, <laughs> amen, yeah. yeah. The one word answer. Yeah. Um, I'll elaborate on that a little bit more though. So first of all, um, TXA, uh, great therapy, inexpensive, easy to administer. 
you know, yeah. I'll get into a lot of different things. First of all, maybe I'll talk a little bit about the, the evidence behind it, right? Yeah, I would love that. So, you know, the, probably the, the the best evidence that comes from it is something called the Crash 2 study, study right? Yeah. And this was a really unique uh, trial that was done all over the world, and actually resource-poor settings yeah. um, that included about 20,000 patients. And basically, they compared uh, two grams of tranexamic acid, one gram uh, bolus and one gram infusion, uh, versus placebo and largely they found a 10% reduction in overall mortality wow. and I think you know if you compare that compared to even the, like cancer drugs and things like that I mean it's a game changer yeah um, and by and large you know even if you look at uh, tranexamic acid in other settings there's a meta-analysis that shows that it reduces mortality in GI bleeding. It reduces oh, peritoneum yeah. hemorrhage uh, and transfusion there. There's a large trial similar to the crash use trial called the WOMEN trial that basically studied peritoneum hemorrhage. Yeah. And it's also great for many surgeries. I think the thing that I often most hear about the reservation to use tranexamic acid is if you're using tranexamic acid to prevent clot breakdown, are you going to produce more clots? I would probably say the evidence just hasn't borne that out yet. And, yeah. you know, it's over a fairly large number of patients. Mm. Many, some of these studies did exclude patients that were high risk for clotting, but studies like CRASH-2 didn't exclude these patients no. at all. And none of these patients really developed um, any any significant signs of clot. Right. The other thing that's been brought up was in very rare circumstances, uh, tranexamic acid has been associated with seizures. Oh, okay. So if you use, uh, so in cardiac surgery, they oftentimes will use very large doses of tranexamic acid, okay. uh, like five grams, again, compared oh, to wow. the two grams that we would give in trauma. Yeah. And the reason why it produces seizures is it's uh, basically similar to the neurotransmitter glycine. So it actually lowers, lowers your seizure threshold. We've never seen this in trauma. And again, in cardiac surgery, you're using five grams, yeah. 10 grams. Yeah. I wouldn't worry about that risk in this setting. The last kind of practical point I would point out is that, especially in rural settings, I find that access to run, uh, so the typical way you give it is one gram bolus and then a one gram infusion over eight hours. Sometimes that eight hour infusion is really tough to pull off because of access, because yeah. you're trying to transport the patient. Yeah. Um, there's this really interesting study called uh, the MATTERS study that was done in the United Kingdom. And what they did was they just compared tranexamic acid versus no tranexamic acid, but in the tranexamic acid group, they allowed people to give the second gram as a bolus oh, rather really? than infusion. And if you look at the survival curves, I would want to be a person in the <laughs> tranexamic acid <laughs> a Bolus. Right? Really? So the message I always tell people is, look, I don't know if one gram bolus plus one gram infusion is better than two grams bolus. bolus yeah. But what I do know is if you have a choice between giving it or not giving it, you should just give it. Yeah. So yeah. if you're having a question whether or not the second gram, you're worried about running an infusion, just give it as a bolus. Yeah. Okay. Can I ask you, because there's the time limit thing, right? Like a, yeah, a lot of times, brain. oh, I know, it's a bit scary because Landon was going to ask the exact, thing. yeah, we, we often talk about it has to be three hours from when the bleeding started. Yeah. And so you, so two questions. One, is that true? And secondly, that's one of the, to me, is one of the concerns giving it for a GI bleed, yeah. unless they're actually having uh, esophageal varices where they start bleeding. How do I know when the GI bleed started? Yeah. That's, yeah. 
great questions. Uh, so uh, both the CRASH-2 trial and the WOMEN trial showed the benefit really within three hours of administration, right? Okay. In terms of giving it after three hours, there's some post hoc analysis of these yeah. trials that basically show that there might be some harm. I always caution people on this, though, because, you know, post hoc, you know, if we're going to be strict about study methodology, yeah. it's actually meant to be hypothesis generating. It's okay. not actually a post hoc finding in a study, to me, is not real, Just, yeah. right? So you need really, to actually there study to drive. it. Your next research question. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's yeah. not to change your practice. Correct. And so really why not. I would say, especially in rural cities where so, you don't have resources, I would probably say in general, even um, after the three hours, it's probably not unreasonable to at least consider tranexamic acid or even give it. But definitely you're going to see the most benefit within three right. hours. So what you're saying is if a patient is dying yeah. and you're not sure exactly the three or three and a half hour mark, but you can see that they're dying because they're bleeding to death, just give it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and, and we're a big proponent as of well of clinical friends. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if, even if you're in a rural site, you have a hematologist somewhere or transfusion medicine specialist. Sorry if I got the specialty wrong. Yeah. Who you can phone and and say, what do you and, think? Yeah, mm -hmm. we, we're, yeah. We're big on, you know, even nurses phoning other nurses in specialty centers going, I just had a burn. I can't remember everything, phone the burn center and ask them for advice. And yeah, if you're in this like, oh, it's been four hours and I'm they're bleeding and I'm not sure if I should give TXA, there's probably a specialist you could phone and say, yeah. I just need to run something by you. What what do you think? Right? So, and we don't need to make these decisions independently, trying to remember every study that has ever yeah. been done. And yeah. So even before you call, to me, what I tell people, if you see someone bleeding, yeah, even you know, call for your blood product but yeah. then give TXA because it sits in your setting exactly. generally speaking there's no transport issue because we use it in so many different ways it's easy. and it's easy <laughs> to give so we've only talked about it in an IV dose um, and I do tell folks that you can actually soak it in gauze and stick it in wounds or uh, you can put it up noses Some like noses. you can put nasal tampons and stick it up there we've seen good benefit from using it there have you have heard of those things at all uh, I, so I have I haven't heard of it, the specific dissolving of the oral yeah. dose, but you know, there's actually lots of great data on topical transexamic acid, acid. Uh, especially yeah. in sort of the orthopedic setting, right? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that doesn't surprise me at all. Right? Yeah. So we do use it in those kind of circumstances as well yeah. when we have bad epistaxis and things cocaine. like that. It is better than <laughs> Which is what we use. <laughs> yes. Uh, we when still we do actually for tampons. Cocaine up their nose. Exactly. Now you can just use TXA. I know. <laughs> so have you, I, I heard and I... I'm not sure if it's even out there. There is a CRASH-3 study, isn't there, that's giving TXA specifically for uh, bleeds in the brain. Is that true? I think so. I, have I haven't seen admit, it. I haven't seen it yet. No, I haven't heard a either. lot about it, but, I mean, it would it would make sense. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's uh, interesting. It's interesting. My, my sense is I know people are looking into also whether or not you should be giving tranexamic acid based off of sort of like point of care testing. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, just because you can show... Uh, quick clock breakdown in those types of tests. So maybe people are starting to think about whether or not you would guide it based off of your point of care testing. Oh, really? Yeah. So that's maybe we should let him talk a little bit about that because when he's talking about point of care testing, he's actually talking about something called Rotem, which a lot of other hospitals 
you know, smaller sites obviously what do what not have. Stand for oh, me? I knew you were going to ask me that, but it's rotography. I think it's rotational. Oh, rotational thrombo. Oh, on the tree. That's right. Yeah, yeah thrombo. I, uh, thrombo. I was thought about that's right. Not liking <laughs> yeah. big words, so I knew I just I, say I, rotem. I had to pitch that yeah. One. <laughs> so, Andrew, do you want to tell them a little bit about what rotem is? Yeah. Yeah. So, just very briefly, I yeah. mean, uh, the whole idea is that you mostly see this in uh, larger centers, right? And it's basically a point of care whole blood test to uh, basically determine whether or not the whole blood can form a blood clot. Okay. And people have been starting to use this uh, during trauma settings um, and other surgical settings to basically figure out is where the hemostatic defect is. So based off of the rotum, uh, the tracing, you can basically see whether or not maybe you're not forming the clot fast enough. So you provide plasma or mm -hmm. a certain part of the clot isn't forming correctly. So you would give fibrinogen, for example. Right. You know, the evidence and the standardization of this stuff is still probably in the works right now. Mm -hmm. So I would say this is not standard of care uh, across North America. Um, but I think it's at least it's a promising tool. And I think uh, one of the senses I get is at the very least, it kind of it helps reframe the conversation about coagulation and right. hemostasis for the bedside clinician, right? Because right. I think the difficulty with INR and PTT is, first of all, it takes a while to get them. Yeah. And the second thing is um, none of those tests have ever been validated in trauma. Actually, if you go back to INR, it was only used as a way to monitor warfarin. Mm -hmm. If you look at PTT, it was only developed as a screening test to look for hemophilia. And maybe yeah. later on uh, was used to monitor unfractionated heparin. It was never really built as a bleeding assessment tool. tool. Okay. Uh, so I would argue, especially in the trauma setting, right. that's why people don't treat based off of labs that much. Right. Uh, that's why you know uh, the initial blood products that you give are typically more geared towards something like ratio-based right. or point of care testing. Okay, that's very interesting. That's fascinating. I know. I know that. I didn't either. And throw the blood test away. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I'm not sure we answered the question about GI bleeds, TXA and GI bleeds. And could I ask you another question? Because yeah. I've had this question asked and I really don't know the answer is ruptured ectopics and right. would TXA because a ruptured ectopic to me would be more an arterial bleed and I'm not sure if TXA I, I'm not sure. Yeah. Anyway. It's so GI bleeding, there's actually a great uh, systematic review up there that shows across studies you see a decreased mortality in GI bleeding. So I, I basically okay. would advocate for its use in GI bleeding. And that's still okay. like saying one gram. Uh, so nobody nobody agrees on the dose. No, uh, okay. But I think if you have a massively bleeding patient Person, similar yeah. to a massive transfusion, I think uh, the one trauma dose. Yes. <laughs> is very reasonable, right? Okay. Um, the other thing, just to point out quickly about GI bleeding, is uh, the weird thing is that, um, so, you know, the typical ratio based is more in trauma patients where we know they they consume their coagulation factors a lot faster. faster GI yeah. bleeding is a special breed of bleeding in a way where, uh, and, uh, you know, what we're starting to see emerge from the evidence is that, you know, as you give more and more plasma, mm -hmm. maybe it's not as good for these patients. So uh, a lot of centers are actually saying for GI bleeds, you don't necessarily need to activate a massive transfusion protocol right away. Um, so I know in, I think in some centers in Toronto, I know some centers in the UK, they do what's called a speed bump. So they start out with about two to four units of red cells, and if the patient still continue to bleed, then they activate a massive, activate a massive transfusion protocol. Okay. Because uh, if you actually follow people's coagulation tests, I think during GI bleeds, uh, they don't, you don't see as much derangement as you would see in trauma. 
So, okay. you know, taking the trauma Piece practice yeah. and trying to put it into GI bleeding, uh, you know, may not be the best fit. Because the trauma, the trauma itself may be inducing coagulopathies on top of everything else that's going on. Exactly. There's a well-known term called trauma-induced coagulopathy. Yeah. Actually, the first thing to drop is actually your fibrinogen. Oh, really? Yeah. So I think that's one thing that people often forget about. People forget about fibrinogen. And there's actually uh, some trials going around the world right now about upfront fibrinogen and oh. master transfusion protocols. I'm personally a believer, but, you know, there, you know, uh, limited evidence right now. Fascinating. Love it. I know. It's it's great to kind of grow our brain. Um, um, so go I ahead. One other question. Yeah. It's a, just a term because we work in a large facility. We're used to this, but you, you talked about ratio-based yeah. transfusion. If you can just sort of describe that just for people who may have worked rurally. And I, I know there's like various different what ratios are what, and we don't need to debate that necessarily, but more just what do you mean when you say ratio-based? Yeah. Great question. Yeah. Uh, first, I just wanted to jump back to your topic. I forgot question. that too. Um, yeah, sorry. Uh, first of all, uh, first of all, um, I don't have a huge amount of knowledge about ectopic yeah. pregnancy. I don't think that I, I'm not aware of any specific literature on it. Yeah, no, um, but in general, I would say that where you have bleeding, it's probably not unreasonable to try, especially yeah. if you have somebody who is bleeding to death. Yeah, right? I, yeah. Uh, any, any. I always say that uh, anything that you're worried about is a side effect of trinitamic acid. You gotta, you gotta have a patient that's alive even before that's a concern, right? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and I always, always think about that risk benefit, especially when you right. have limited resources or you're trying to get this person out. And I kind of like what you said is that you're. It's kind of a stopgap to getting to that uh, definitive thing, right? Right? Yeah. The massive transfusion is the same thing. Yeah. We're doing that till we can stop the bleeding, however that looks, whether it's going up to the OR, whether it's going to interventional radiology, whether it's going for a scope or whatever it is that we need to kind of stop bleeding at its source. So I'll let you go back to thank you for that and the ratio. Yeah, um, so I'll talk definition. a little bit about ratios now. So uh, when we talk about ratios, we mean a ratio of red cells to plasma to platelets. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, the way I always explain it is if you took a tube of blood that you took from anybody, you spun it down, the liquid part on the top contains all your clotting factors, which is your plasma. The layer in the middle, what we call our, your buffy coat, contains your platelets, which are needed to form the clot. And then everything below that is your red cells, right? So you wanna, if you can imagine, uh, if somebody's bleeding out whole blood, you wanna give something that's somewhat equivalent, right? You gotta have all three of those parts. So the way the ratio works is for each unit of red blood cells, uh, you give one unit of plasma and also a unit of platelets. Where the confusion often happens is the platelets have largely standardized the terminology to one it's adult. It's be the platelets. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> we have standardized the terminology to one adult dose. And that's because different uh, jurisdictions around the world will pool different amounts of units of platelets to form a platelet dose. Uh, so in Canada, it's typically four units. In Quebec, it's five, um, uh, and you'll basically see around four to five units in different jurisdictions around the world. Mm -hmm. So uh, let's just say you were to have a massive transfusion here at Vancouver General Hospital, a Canadian center. It would be four units of red cells, four one. units of plasma, okay. and one adult dose of platelets. Which is actually four, right? Which so is four units, yeah. right? So when, when an anesthesiologist calls me and says, I need four doses of platelets, I usually correct them and say, you're probably thinking units, Yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. four units, one dose. Yeah. Okay, God, that's so, so confusing. Four, four, and one. Yeah. Yeah. 
but really the one is Which actually really four. brings you to one, 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 yeah. one. Yeah. Other thing I wanted to bring up about ratios is probably the only study that has looked at this uh, greatly is something called the proper study. So they looked at a one to one to one ratio versus a one to one to two ratio. And what they mean by one to one to two is having twice as many red cells as everything else. Okay. okay. And what they found was, I believe, at 24 hours and 30 days, there was no difference in mortality between these two groups. But they did a secondary analysis that showed less exsanguination or less death due to the exsanguination in the one-to-one-to-one arm. So this is so the take-home I get from that is that I think two-to-one-to-one or one-to-one-to-two is the same standard of care as one-to-one-to-one. But if you can hit one-to-one-to-one, that's probably better uh, if you can, right? And you're using less blood. Yeah. Yeah, Exactly. If you're resource limited, it. Yeah, so you, you can benefit you. at least yeah. get at least not use as many red cells right. up front, right? Yeah. And I think the other thing I always tell people is I kind of taking us back to the beginning of this talk is that again, the MTP protocol is not about what ratio. I would argue again that's the least important part of this, right? The most important part is having a plan and executing it smoothly. Right. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's kind of a good wow. place to My end goodness. it. What do you think? So I, I actually think, though, Andrew, if you were to do, just before we end, if you could think of three take-homes, um, because I think I can think of I three ta- take-homes. We'll see if they're all the same. Uh, wouldn't that be interesting? <laughs> I because I know. <laughs> this is the knowledge Exactly. Yeah. So I think maybe should we let our guests go first? Totally. And, then, and then we'll go those where exactly three our three. you want. <laughs> Them the world to remember standing at the bedside. Yeah. yeah. So uh, the first thing I think, as I said before, you know, the massive transfusion protocol is really about the protocol, right? And really, with these things, you want to have practice, right? Mm-hmm. I think practice is the most important thing. Like yeah. any of these skills in acute situations can be taught. Yeah. Um, and I think uh, you're doing your patients. Uh, you know, for many of the smaller centers that may only see you know, a massive transfusion every once in a while, of course, you're going to be inexperienced when you do it. But that's, you know, simulation is the thing that helps fill that gap. Perfect. Uh, The second thing is, you know, I I think about what you can do as part of the team. Let's just say you're a nurse in a massive transfusion protocol, right? Uh, So I think a couple things is that really thinking about all the adjuncts, again, avoiding hypothermia, correcting the hypocalcemia, keeping track of the lab test to make sure that someone is on top of it. I would even argue sometimes, you know, you have delays of transporting blood to the to the emergency room just because of things you can't control like yeah, elevators right exactly you know i always say if you need the blood that badly send a runner yeah right? exactly runner, yeah right uh the last thing i'll, I'll uh, point out too i mean and it's actually something i didn't even discuss earlier because i know one of you will point out trying to stomach acid <laughs> oh, so, i know i'd love to get the fourth Probably point be like 100%. The third point I want to get across, which I haven't talked about, is that there's actually, so we know that the universal donor is an O negative donor, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And I would say uh, that's old dogma that uh, needs to be thrown out a bit. Uh, so the new, uh, the new teaching nowadays mm-hmm. is that if you're a woman uh, who is not of childbearing potential, uh, we use that as an age cutoff of 45. Yeah. You know, this is largely based off of you know, statistics sure. and uh, data. And Or if you're a male, you can get O positive blood. Yeah. The reason why that matters is because actually only about 6% of donors are O negative. Yeah. About 12% of our transfusions are O negative. Yeah. How does that math work out? You basically <laughs> 
basically a deficit. That's it's how a deficit. It works out. <laughs> exactly. Someone doesn't get the blood they Well, yeah. not actually. Believe it or not, uh, what happens is uh, the six percent of donors get asked to donate over and over again. You've probably, whether oh, yeah. you're in the United States, Canada, anywhere else. Uh, around the world. I know yeah. Australia, Denmark, all, UK, all these places have this problem. You basically keep on asking these O negative donors to come donate oh, again and again, and we're finding we're making them iron deficient, oh, which means dear. they can't donate anymore. <laughs> uh, so this is not a sustainable solution. Yeah, exactly. So in massive transfusion, if you don't have a group and screen, yeah. something you need to get right away yeah. um, to basically switch to the blood group of the patient so you yeah. have a bigger supply of blood, you should be giving positive blood to right. males and women outside of childbearing potential. Right. And that might be before I see it's terrible because I feel like a bit of a squirrel it's because <laughs> I know it's opening a bit of a door um, because you just opened it, Andrew, quite frankly. Um, I just wanted to very much clarify groups and screen yeah. Yeah. and group and match because cross I think, match, yeah, exactly. a cross match and a group and screen because you said that that should be the first test. Yeah. And so before I even tell you what my understanding is, perhaps you can just kind of clarify the difference between those two. Totally. So uh, the way I like to, so obviously the group, you're trying to figure out the patient's ABO group yes. and their RH status. The yeah. ABO group is the most important because if you give the wrong ABO group, uh, that's something that's life-threatening through an acute hemolytic transfusion reaction. And just for people who've like maybe never even been in the lab before yeah. because it's this foreign thing, blood grouping is a very quick thing. Yes, right. Correct. And so, because we, we deal with a lot of people who go, well, I send it, and then 45 minutes later, they tell me the blood's ready. And it's like, yeah. however, they probably knew the blood grouping very quickly. Seconds later, yeah. right? Or yeah. a few minutes. Yeah. And then they were busy doing all the other stuff and the cross matching and everything. Correct. And then your 45 minutes came. So, that communication and that practicing of, and I know I do it here when we really need it, it's like, I just need group specific. I just need yeah. to know they're grouping right now. Yeah. We can worry about the other stuff later, yeah. and and that's part of practicing your plan and knowing that that yeah. talking with your lab people and understanding there's separation between fully cross matched blood and just group specific blood. Yeah, yeah. So again, hit the you know. Uh, it's because we've worked right? here for twenty years. <laughs> <laughs> it's an excellent system. So, so the um, the ABO the in terms of the grouping, you can actually determine that in about five minutes. And the reason why people may tell you it takes longer mm -hmm. and many blood banks now do uh, both the group and screen through automated methods. Mm -hmm. So if you're doing the automated method, usually the automated method does both at the same time, right? Mm -hmm. I would say in these situations, first of all, give uncross match when you need it. You should never delay a life-saving transfusion if you have to give uncross match blood. The hemolysis rate from that is probably around 0.5%, very low. The other-ish thing is that to do the group, you can do it by manual two methods. Yeah. That usually takes about five minutes. Okay. Right? Uh, so I, what I tell our staff is that in a massive transfusion situation, uh, the group gets done by two first. So okay. we can figure out the blood group and we can give group-specific blood. So that leads us to the screen part. Yeah. So the screen part is to essentially, it, what the screen asks is, has my patient had an immune response to blood at some point, right? Because if they've had an immune response to blood, if you give them blood that's incompatible, that can produce hemolysis, okay. right? And for the screen part, usually that's the part that takes a little bit longer. When you do the screen and we find something, we do uh, an antibody panel to figure out what that specific immune reaction is. And then we do a serological cross-match to basically figure out what 
uh, the patient's immune system, does that react in any way to the blood we want to transfuse? Okay. Right? What typically happens when you ask for a group and screen is uh, if we find something positive on the screen, we will automatically cross-match a few units for you. Okay. Usually in main blood banks, it's about two units. Okay. okay. Uh, but um, in the massive transfusion situation, I would say don't even worry about the screen. Yeah. Get the group because if you don't get the group, you're going to run out of O-neg or O-pause very, very quickly, quickly. Yeah. Uh, especially in the smaller centers. And then you can actually branch out to other blood groups and almost, I would say in some cases, almost double or triple your blood supply. Excellent. Yeah. Right, and then the, the, the people who screen positive for antibodies, yeah. it's a rare group. Yeah. Right? Like, it's not 50% of the people, just for some of the people who've never really been around this. I know in our hospital, it's usually people who've had repeated transfusions, yeah. Yeah. cancer patients. Like, there's sort of the, you, you almost draw their group and screen and send it going, they're going to phone back and say there's antibodies. <laughs> right. You can almost see the patient that this is in. So, so it's not a common Toy. thing, right? So it's not something our rural colleagues should like worry about every time oh my god what if they're this group of antibody positive people it's, it's pretty rare yeah give them the blood save their life and if the antibody screen comes up later it's something that you can deal with later yeah right a couple things to that point so one is that uh, a positive antibody uh numbers vary but i would say anywhere from about two to five percent Somewhere okay. around that range, right? So as you said, not that common, right? The second thing is, again, if you're giving group-specific blood, you know, as I said, the uh, the hemolysis rate of giving uncross-matched blood is only about 0.5%. Yeah. The third thing is that hemolysis is treatable. Death is not, yeah. right? <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> so I would argue... I'm going to get that on a T-shirt. Is that, <laughs> is that on the pathologist T-shirt? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Hemolysis is treatable. Death is not. So the whole idea is that, you know, if, you're, if you've given in compiled blood and you figure this out later on the screen if they've had an antibody you know watch that patient for hemolysis and watch their hemoglobin if they're low then you can actually transfuse them right you know I hate to say it I have worked in multiple jurisdictions where a clinician has been un, uh, afraid to give uncross-matched blood and somebody has exsanguinated to death yeah. um, and I, I'm just saying don't be that person yeah, exactly. or if you're a part of that care team care team don't let the decision makers speak up, yeah, exactly. you know, speak up. exactly yeah That's right. and your mantra is going to be hemolysis <laughs> can be curable yeah. death, death is, is not, not. Yeah. i kind of like that um so do you have your final three uh my final oh i've forgotten already yeah uh, my final three were calcium me too txa yeah and I don't remember what my third one was. Oh, it was your first one. Was well, it was about plan. simulation, and I, oh, I yeah. agree. So plan. I think have it. a good plan, but have simulation that includes the people external to that area. Yeah, yeah. So um, you should have your transfusion or the blood bank folks and your escort or porter folks be involved in that simulation because those might be where you're finding the delay so i agree with you simulation i agree the two c's uh cold equals coagulopathy and calcium low equals coagulopathy and i think the third one is txa is good people yeah. give some txa so thank you so much oh andrew that was, that was so fascinating, fascinating. Um, and i'm gonna get those t-shirts made i think I yeah we'll we should we'll we should start selling them on the sell. podcast we'll give it to you. yes yeah, you'll totally get royalties andrew <laughs> So goodbye for now. And and this was so good. I think we're going to do another podcast. Yeah, we are with Andrew, if you don't mind. Andrew. Most definitely. All right. See you later. Thanks Bye. Everyone. Bye. For past episodes and to comment on this episode, please visit our website at nursem.org. That's N-U-R-S-E-M dot O-R-G. 
you can follow us on Twitter at NursomeCast, and also find us on Facebook at NursomePodcast. We look forward to your comments and suggestions for future episodes. Remember, before incorporating anything new into your work, ensure you are supported by your own scope of practice, workplace policies, and your own knowledge and comfort. The Nursum Podcast is brought to you by PRN Education, www.prneducation.ca.